0: Super
1: real. I'm Maggie Kelly, and this is Parent Kind, the show where I investigate the parenting experience from every angle possible. Each episode, I'll hunt down juicy stories from a new topic, tackling all the big stuff sex, body image, mental health, and everything in between. Thanks to our sponsor at Body Catalyst. Now let's get started. If I had to tell you the one thing I find myself talking to parents about most often, it's sex. Sex! The very thing that got us into this mess goes from being, well, sexy, to something else. So when I went to a party recently, it was no surprise that I ended up pulling a bunch of parents aside to ask them about their sex lives. And you know what? They loved it. You could just feel how happy they were to have someone want to talk to them about that big old elephant in the room. How's your sex life been? I would say it's definitely different after kids. You have a lot less energy, a lot less time, and potentially a lot less libido as well.
0: It's a it's a, a radical shift between pre baby when you're trying and it's all fun and it's like yeah that was fun that was really fun, and then afterwards it's yeah you really have to work hard at having it and like the frequency is probably not as frequent as I would like it or, my, or you would like it I same assume. same um, so yeah I think we need to work on that
1: <laughs> do you guys About feel it. guilty for not having sex that often no yeah, I do <laughs> I don't <laughs> I'm so tired usually most of the time and I think my my libido is definitely lower now i would say i think we've had sex as many times i can count on one hand since the baby came to be honest yeah. and, it's, and how old is your baby now it's 15 months
0: 15 months so yeah i think it's also been like it feels like a combination of things like libido lifestyle and like making an effort and i think that pre-baby it was so much easier for us like in terms of ma- the rituals we had in place Right now, it's like, okay, deeper into the relationship, so easy just to chuck on Netflix and watch a show and then say goodnight, because we're both exhausted.
1: Mm, Fascinating. But I wasn't done. I went and poured myself a drink and found another unsuspecting couple. How soon after birth did you guys have sex? Not very long after. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was less than that, like two and a half weeks. Wow, that's so soon. Yep. Okay, and how did you feel? You guys are quite young. Mm -hmm. How did you guys feel your sex life changed when you became
2: parents?
0: It was rushed.
2: It went from having... Planned out. All the time in the world. No stress, like, you know, oh, you want to have sex, we'll have sex, whatever. And uh,
3: it became like a midnight wake-up thing. Like, you wake up in the middle of the night and that was... Like, pretty much the only times we had sex were in the middle of the night when we'd both worked up horny. Uh,
1: what do you think... Still the other time. <laughs> so, do you think that being tired or, like, body changes... I mean, was there something that you felt changed your sex life way more than everything else, or was it just the logistics of not being able to get time apart? Mm,
2: I think it's a bit... You know, you have sex and you're like, oh, kids are
0: made from this, so... You think about it again every time? You tread carefully?
1: <laughs> do you guys talk to each other about sex, much? Do you have yeah. that conversation or it's just like... Not analysis? really. Oh, we did do... Oh, other- sometimes, but... Some
0: reminiscing about the old days.
1: The old days? These guys were like in their early 20s. I guess they were having more sex than me as a teenager. That is to say, none. <laughs> You guys can't see this, but my girlfriend's just stopped and paused and looked out to her baby, and I think that says everything. It takes a while to get back into the groove,
2: mm-hmm. for sure.
1: How long was it after birth before you guys had sex again? I didn't even remember, but I remember that it was like,
2: let's get some lube.
1: Same, totally. And it was so <laughs> confronting. I was like, things come out of there, not
2: go in there. No, it is not right at all. Because I'm not on birth control, my main consideration is... Oh my God, am I going to get pregnant? And then what will that mean? Is that good? Is that bad? Uh, what will happen then? I used to not really think about it very much. I didn't think that I would get so... I didn't think I would get pregnant so easily with Max.
1: You didn't think you'd get so pregnant.
2: So pregnant. (laughs) Have you guys had a
1: conversation about your sex life?
2: Yeah, all the time. Yeah, of course we do. Like, it's, um, yeah, a big deal.
1: Have you felt guilty about sex in any way since you
2: became a mum? Yes. But I think, yeah, like you say, it's about not having the same amount of time for yourself or your partner, but you have to make that time. Like, almost like you have to make a schedule, and that sounds really not very sexy, but if that's the only way you can be sexy, then it's worth it.
1: And funnily enough, that brings us to exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Scheduled sex. Parent sex. Selling sex, sexual identities that emerged decades into parenthood, sex, everything, it's all on the table today. I guess what I'm trying to say is that sex as a parent can become many things that it wasn't beforehand. A chore, a weapon, even an addiction. So today's episode is going to be all about exploring how sex can be transformed through the lens of parenthood. In our first story, I interview a mum and daughter duo from Adelaide who are turning sex into a career and major cash using the platform OnlyFans. And no, you guys not together, separate accounts. Then you'll hear from a guy I spoke to all the way in Texas about how his sex life went through a bit of a make-under when he and his wife were battling infertility and the stress of IVF. So before the kids wake up, let's get it on. Story one: Only fans, no haters. Meet Tiani. Hey,
3: I'm Tiani. I'm 19. I currently live in Adelaide, and I do OnlyFans for work.
2: And this is Tiani's mum, Evie. I'm Evie. I'm 37, and I do OnlyFans um, as a side hustle. I'm a beauty therapist, and I live in Adelaide. As you heard, they both live in Adelaide,
1: and they both earn their money via a sharing platform called. OnlyFans. I'll let Tiani explain. So OnlyFans is a site where you can
3: sell uh, pay-per-view content um, and you can also do a subscription price which people usually do. So my subscription price is currently at $20 and what it is is all I do is really post like lingerie photos, bikini photos and uh, some cheeky videos and stuff like that like it's my OnlyFans is a lot less than other people's but you can do cooking on there, you can do um, workouts, you can do fitness, you can do anything really but the main point of OnlyFans
1: is to do explicit photos. Okay so a bit of a history lesson for anyone not familiar with OnlyFans. OnlyFans actually started way back in 2016 by a couple of brothers, the Stokely brothers, as a general image and video sharing platform. It didn't kind of become sexy until it was bought in 2018 by a Ukrainian-American businessman, Leodid Ravinsky, who owned MyFreeCams, a webcam porn site. And then it became sexy, like really sexy, it's kind of become a bit of a mecca for sex workers and nude models and pretty much anyone looking to make money from selling imagery of their body. Okay, now that's out of the way, let's get back to Tiani and Evie.
3: So um, it was about five or six months after I turned 18 and I was looking into it and I did really want to do it. Um, So I talked to my boyfriend about it first and got his okay, which he was fine with it to begin with, which is really good. Um, And then I had to go talk to my mom, which I was worried about because I know that she would be a little bit weird about me doing that kind of stuff. So I did talk to her at first. She didn't want me to. She was like, you know, what else do you want to do? You know, you can study. And I was like, you know, I can do both, actually. Like I can study and I can do this. And she was like, you know what? Do whatever you want. So I did it. I was 18. So I'm, you know, (laughs) I told her that I'm going to do it anyway. Um, And when I first started, I made heaps of money and I started to really enjoy it because I just, I'm always like in a bikini taking photos, like that's just, my Instagram's full of that stuff anyway, so I thought why not make some money out of it.
1: Tiani's OnlyFans page is pretty tame as far as they go. She's a petite brunette, pretty curvy, there's lots of bikini shots, but then there's also these moments of earnest girl-next-door sweetness, like... She's trying to upload a video of her sexily getting out of the pool and her toddler brother grabs the phone. It's really cute. It's kind of hard not to like Tiani. She's naturally beautiful, friendly and, yeah, sexy. And her fans agree. Guess how much she made in her first six months. Go on. Guess.
3: The last time I did check that account, I did make a $100, 100000
1: thousand dollars in six months. In her first six months on OnlyFans, 18-year-old Tiani made more money than most of us do in a year. These days, due to her account being shut down and then being set back up and trying to regain followers, you know the drill, Tiani says she's making a little bit less in the ballpark of around $20,000 per month. If I was pulling that kind of cash at 18, I know my mother would have probably called the police on me. So I asked her mom, Evie, what her initial reaction was.
2: So at first I said, no, it was, don't talk to me about it. It's not happening. If it happens, <laughs> um, you can go live somewhere else. <laughs> I was really um, worried. Um, and she went ahead and did it anyway. And um, yeah, she... I monitored it to make sure that she wasn't doing nudes. It was pretty tame. It was the sort of stuff that you'd see on Instagram. Um, And I guess I grew more and more comfortable with it over time. She didn't get any stalkers. There was nothing weird happening. Um, I found out sort of how popular it was and it seems that every Tom, Dick and Harry is on OnlyFans these days. So, um, yeah, I got more comfortable with it and um, she – She worked um, in retail uh, the whole year that she, the first year that she did it, as well as made um, $100,000 extra cash. Evie and Tiani
1: are really close. Evie was just 17 when she had Tiani, and you can really sense that these two have an unbreakable connection. Tiani, the eldest child of a single-mom household, has an air about her that feels a lot older than 19, And offsetting that is the fact that Evie looks to be in her 20s. She's 36, by the way. And at risk of sounding like that gross middle-aged man at a hotel buffet, they genuinely could pass as sisters. Evie has long blonde hair, a beachy tan, and honestly, the most insane figure. Tiny waist, flat stomach, big boobs. Now, I'm not suggesting that being aesthetically gorgeous means you have to cash in on that, but I'm not surprised that at some point someone suggested to Evie that maybe she should give it a go too. I asked Evie what led her in the end to
2: join OnlyFans. I guess her being on it for the entire year and seeing that nothing bad had happened, um, I just got more comfortable with it. I had friends who started doing it. Um, It just sort of, friends, close friends who would talk to me about it often and it just sort of started becoming more normal Um, and then I had people suggesting that I do it and I did weigh it up for a long time Um, and then, yeah, I decided to start doing it after I split up with my boyfriend.
1: Here's the thing about OnlyFans,
2: it's not just a
1: young person's game. It's incredibly democratic. There's old people, young people, fat people, skinny people, transgender, disabled, black, white. Everyone is welcome and everyone is there to make money. And they make money. But just quickly, on the diversity of OnlyFans, it's problematic to look at it as too much of a digital utopia. There is this toxic gaze that takes its toll on minority content makers – And there's been a lot of discussion online about how the OnlyFans algorithm is currently preferring white content makers, so just take all of this with a grain of salt. Anyway, Evie joins OnlyFans, and just five months in, she's made $60,000. $60,000! Unlike Tiani, she started out a little more conservatively, so no face shots, no nudes, uh, no topless, just bikini photos and that sort of thing. But when she failed to get the same traction as Tiani, she asked for some advice. Tiani said that she needed to loosen up a bit, trust the platform, show her face, and let people get to know her.
2: So I started, um, yeah, just doing bikini pics, um, lingerie mainly, and then just sending pay-per-view content of boobs or something like that. But then um, I guess when you're doing it, you're sort of like, You're in your bedroom, you're in, you know, or I'd go with friends and hire apartments and things like that and you're sort of like comfortable in, you know, you get more comfortable in front of the camera, you get more comfortable with filming and um, expressing that sexual side of yourself and you start to sort of enjoy it and, you know, I think it was more that I would take content and be like, oh, well, this looks good or that looks good and then I'd actually want people to see that because that's (laughs) hard. Let's talk about the
1: word content for a hot second. These images are carefully coordinated, styled, posed, selected, and edited all by Tiani or Evie themselves. They don't have a team working on this, and it's a massive outlay of time. From an outsider looking in, it's kind of like that modern art thing where someone looks at Duchamp's urinal or Jackson Pollock and says, huh, I could do that. But you couldn't. And most importantly, you haven't. And it's kind of the same thing with OnlyFans. Yeah, it seems like it's just a cute lingerie photo, but it's probably taken a couple of hours to produce from start to finish. It's a job. So, Tiani, tell me, how does this actually work? Probably do it like once every couple of weeks, but I'll just take like
3: multiple, like I'll take like a hundred photos and a couple of videos. Like I, I usually do that, but... If I'm talking like how many hours I'm doing it for, I'm doing it literally all day from like when I wake up until I go to sleep. Sometimes I'm up until like 3am doing it. Uh-huh.
2: And what takes the most time? I think that it's the pro- um, promoting that takes the most time. You know, you've got um, you've got your platforms, Reddit, Twitter, um, Instagram. So you've got to f- uh, have content to be able to promote, um, have content that... Um, to put on OnlyFans as well. So there's a lot of content making. There is a lot of editing, um, but I guess coming up with discounts and doing shout outs for shout outs with other girls um, and it's just constant. You check your inbox and there's people that are, you know, wanting certain things or girls that are wanting shout outs or a, a lot of time I spend giving advice to people as well, um, which probably takes up too much of my time, but um, yeah, there's a lot that, that's involved in it. With little kids at home, Evie will often get an apartment with some other
1: OnlyFans ladies and do a collaboration. That's a big thing on the platform, a similar kind of sisterhood to other sex worker environments where, yeah, there's competition, but there's also this protectiveness and a desire for everyone to have a piece of the pie. We get to the question that I know they've been asked a million times before. Do you guys ever get any weirdos asking you to like make out?
2: I've had maybe two or three messages saying, do you do content with your daughter? And I'll say, absolutely not. Um, we don't do content together. So there are definitely people, I guess, that are interested in the both of us. Most of my messages that are all the majority um, are people that are into the MILFs because that gets mentioned a lot. And different, all different ages.
1: And Evie, what's the weirdest thing you've been asked to do for money?
2: Um, I think the weirdest thing is um, small dick humiliation, which is really, really common and popular, a lot more popular than I thought it was. That I had never heard of it, so I, at first I thought it was hilarious and I, um, I would never, ever do it, though. I couldn't bring myself to do it. I just feel like what has happened to you, like, you know, what sort of trauma do you have have you, did you get teased in your adolescence or something like i feel sorry for them and to bring myself to say those words i can't do it i actually tried and it just the words wouldn't even come out it's just not me i can't shame someone and make them feel bad but they like they actually really get off on it
1: i asked tiani how it feels to hear her mom talk about this sort of stuff does she feel weirded out by understanding her mom as a sexual being yeah nah I don't get screaming at all I'm just
3: like yeah go for it because we've always been close like it's never really been an issue um, I've never been like embarrassed to tell my mum things I've never kept secrets from her anything
1: like that so I don't really mind when she talks about this kind of stuff. <laughs> so it turns out that Tiani gets asked for some pretty odd sort of request as well and you know not that I'm here to yuck anyone's yum but it's pretty interesting hairy toes and hairy armpits
3: they want photos of that <laughs> <laughs> and i mean i don't know i can't bring myself to do it like it's just i keep i keep laughing i'm like why do they want this like just a close-up photo of like my hairy armpit and they're like oh yeah grow it out for like a week and a half or something i'm not shaving anybody's kinks but i don't know i i honestly don't know what i'd price it at
1: probably like ten dollars ten bucks it's a bargain Harry toes
2: aside, there's a real glee to the OnlyFans setup Um, Because men are always going to sexualise women anyway, you know, at the, and, you know, shame us as well, you know, at the cost of our mental health. Um, and if you, I guess, can just own it um, and profit from them, I think it's great. So it was around this point that
1: our interview took a really unexpected turn. I, full disclosure, went into the interview thinking I was about to get this great sex positive story about mums and daughters and making news, and that would be it. But it ended up being something different because the joy and the freedom that Evie was enjoying was perhaps deeper for her than others. Because at one stage of her life, this setup was unimaginable. Evie left Tiani's dad when Tiani was still really young. It was a very toxic household. He was physically abusive, emotionally abusive, financially abusive. Evie's confidence when she left was almost non-existent. For over a decade, she'd been told how to dress very conservatively, and she wasn't allowed to socialise with him or his friends. She was trapped. She was a stay-at-home mom who had never really been allowed to celebrate or explore
2: her sexuality their dad was very controlling of me over what I wore um, and, you know, he basically kept me in the house for 11 years, didn't let me work, didn't let me have a life, he was super controlling. So when I broke away from that and I realised that I wasn't all the things that he made me feel about myself, um, he put me down a lot um, and then I was like, wait a minute, I'm I'm actually kind of sexy. So <laughs> Um, Yeah, so I think for me, breaking away from that um, definitely brought out my fun sexual side. Yeah, I think I just got to a point where I realised that I think it was going out and working for the first time and realising that it wasn't normal. I think being with him since I was 17 or 16 years old, um, it became normal to me Um, and I saw Um, You know, my mum and dad had six kids. They stayed together. um, You just sort of do it for the kids. So I stayed there with him because um, I just wanted my kids to have, you know, the mum and the dad.
1: Evie said that in leaving her ex-husband, it really did take a while to rediscover
2: her sexuality. I... Felt a bit homesick for him for a long time, Um, so it took me a while. I think I was single for about four years after that. Um, I think I was quite, I I knew that I needed to heal, so I saw um, a psychologist and just stayed focused on the kids and I didn't, you know, run out and party or anything, but I have, I guess I became more active on social media and putting myself out there and feeling free to do my makeup and dress in sexy clothes and then I started to date someone else who uh, that was a shock because he um, would have me there with his friends and usually I was sort of kept isolated so for me to be with an, a normal guy that was treating me with respect was definitely an eye-opener um, so I remember thinking that I was in love with this guy um, and then I realized that a lot of guys are actually like that. <laughs> Around this point of
1: the interview, I think of all the internal bias I'm actually carrying towards sex workers, and you know what we all are. I asked Tiani and Evie if they see themselves as sex workers, and I was really glad when they both proudly said that they do.
2: I do, yeah, in a way, yeah, yeah, definitely,
1: yeah. Because here's the thing: I think it's really easy to forget that there's always a story behind sex work. There's a story behind anyone's work. It's really lazy to assume that people do it for attention or because they're in a crisis. For some people, like Evie, it's been a battle cry, a declaration over her own body, a mighty fuck you to the man that controlled her life and a ticket to
2: financial freedom. I plan on starting my own business, beauty business, possibly a skincare range. Um, At the moment, my focus is renovating finishing off the renovations at my house my i've got a little three-year-old as well and his um his dad started a million things without finishing so i have been slowly working towards that and i'm almost there um so after and i've been putting lump sums on my mortgage as well so that's good um so after uh, the house is f- finished renovated and my mortgage is I'm looking at buying an investment property at the moment but um, I guess just setting us all up is my goal. Tiani
3: feels the same way. Definitely saving for a house I've got a fair bit and I'm just um, looking for the right one I probably want to build. Um, I'm hoping to buy a house outright by the time I'm 21 or 22 that's my goal. Um, so hopefully I can do that. And I think I will be able to, um, with the money that's coming in. So yeah, just setting uh, me and my family up and obviously me and my boyfriend with a beautiful house.
1: I asked Tiani if their family have ever asked any questions about where this sudden influx of cash was coming from.
3: Yeah, my whole, our whole entire family knows. So grandma, grandpa, aunties, uncles, everyone. (laughs) They love the idea and they're so supportive. And all the news articles that were out about us, they loved it. They were commenting on it, loving it. Like, yeah, they're really proud of us.
1: (laughs) Actually, listen to this. This is a text that
2: Evie's sister sent her on the way to the recording. I love it so much. She said, I'm so grateful that there is now such a variety of work available to suit each individual as a society. There's an unbelievable amount of shame around sexuality and people feel suffocated in their sexual expression. On some level, we all want to be able to accept ourselves and love that aspect of ourselves. We need this kind of focus on sexuality to accelerate the shift in our culture. People are going to be triggered and we need to be triggered to bring those shadows to light. I don't think that there's any other way to bring awareness to our judgments and fears if there's no awareness, then change can't happen. And then she just sort of went on to say that she's, um, you know, excited for me to do this podcast.
1: Is this not the most awesome family you've ever heard of? I love them. They are so open-minded and so beautiful and supportive. In turn, Evie has really passed this on in her relationship with Tiani and really instilled her with a sense of body confidence. It's awesome. It's awesome. I ask if that was something that
2: was deliberate for her as a mother or something that sort of just came about. I think that's the sort of thing that comes naturally. It wasn't something that I really gave a lot of thought to. Um, I've never had body image issues like a lot of people have, so I, there wasn't a lot of focus on that, of the way that I should talk to her about her body. Um, I never really talked much about my body. I've always sort of walked around the house naked and... Um, And been comfortable even after breastfeeding three kids and my boobs were down to my belly button before I got my lift. They'd come along and jiggle my boobs. (laughs) It's kind of funny hearing Evie talk
1: about Tiani and the little ones. My daughter is just over a year old and I wonder how our relationship will be because something about this story did challenge me, you know, like you're so protective over these little beings and you don't want them to be rushed into being sexual objects. So it was kind of comforting when Evie reassured me that she's still first and foremost a mum.
2: Well, she says that we're more like sisters, but she's I don't remember her ever shifting. She's my baby girl. She's my daughter. <laughs> she's I don't feel like she's my sister or that it's shifted. Um, Tiani's quite mature. She always has been. Um, so with I think that her 17-year-old sisters a lot different to her. So I still sort of I guess not I wouldn't say baby her, but she I'm a bit stricter with her than I was than I was ever with Tiani because I trusted Tiani's um, decisions and things like that. She's always been quite mature. And I guess we're friends. Um, I wouldn't say like sisters, but friends because um, we, ha- we, we just have good conversations and uh, we get along great. Tiani and Evie are
1: clever. They both proudly call themselves feminists. Evie had to fight for her right to be independent and sexually proud, and she did so so her daughters could be also. When I was writing this, I kept thinking about this thing that US Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said. She goes, They'll tell you that you're too loud, that you need to wait your turn, and ask the right people for permission. Do it anyway. I love that quote. And guess what? They'll also tell you that you're too old to be sexy, you're too young, you're a mother, you're a student. They'll tell you lots of things to suppress your sexuality. So do you know what I think? I think you should do it anyway. Story 2. Honey, it's that time again. When is sex not sexy? Well, when it's not consensual, for one. When it hurts, maybe. When someone does something weird or unexpected, or a finger ends up somewhere it shouldn't, or should. Anyway, sex is really not sexy when it's scheduled. Nothing takes the magic away quite like a calendar invite. But this was the reality for Scott Rowan and his wife, Melody.
0: My name is Scott Rowan. I live in Austin, Texas. I am 35, if I uh, remember that right. And uh, I'm a video producer. I own a video production company here in Austin. Uh, My wife, Melody, is six years older than me, so she is 41.
1: Shortly after they got married, Scott and Melody started trying for a baby.
0: So we kind of knew that, you know, like, uh, because she was six years older than uh, I am... um, that we'd probably have to start, like, pretty quickly after we got married. So essentially, uh, after right after the wedding, we, we pulled the goalie, as they say, um, and stopped using birth control. And after, I think it was like, I want to say like a year and a half, roughly, uh, still nothing had happened.
1: This was the first sign the couple had of anything being abnormal. A year and a half is a long time. It doesn't sound like it, but, you know, it is. We're talking 18 pregnancy tests, 18 hopeful months, 18 heartbreaking periods, over and over again thinking, this is our month, and then realising, no, it's not. Scott and Melody eventually accepted that conceiving naturally might just not be possible.
0: So we had we hadn't seen any success, or um, which I know that like a lot of times it it does take some time. Um, So we went into the fertility clinic, um, and they uh, were able to run all the tests, and basically they determined that her egg count was quite uh, was a lot lower than um, you would hope for, at least as far as optimizing the probability of success pursuing um, pursuing pregnancy the, the natural way.
1: Sadly, that's where it landed. It's a pretty heartbreaking conclusion to a long and painful journey, and honestly, the next chapter for Scott and Melody really is a story unto its own. But what I'm interested in talking to Scott about is something that's often forgotten in the IVF roller coaster sex. And not for women, for men. Because here's the thing, spontaneous, fun, sensual sex becomes something different when trying to conceive. There's kind of this awareness that there's a job to do. You're not just there to have fun. And that duty is felt by both the woman and the man.
0: My very good friend who has a young daughter now, uh, his advice was to just have as much sex as possible. Just like, even if you don't want to because you've been having so much sex, then, uh, just like put it in the schedule, make it happen. And then you're it's, you will have, it's just increasing the probability of success. Um, and so not that we went crazy, (laughs) but, uh, but it definitely, you know, like we tried to increase frequency and, um, we were using the, the ovulation test strips, uh, to like pinpoint on the, on the day. That's the, the highest probability. Uh, so we started going down that route. um, and it, after a while, it just, uh, you know, again, it um, nothing was happening.
1: Just have as much sex as possible. Sounds like fun instructions, but it's not. This is the part, says Scott, where things like cycle tracking comes into the picture. You know, finding out the exact day and the exact time that you and your partner should be shagging. Couples suddenly find themselves trapped between two conflicting emotions. Firstly, not wanting to have sex at that exact moment... But then, also really wanting a baby, it becomes this weird battle of sex versus future family plans, and that is not good.
0: Yeah, I think that I mean, there's a, a whole slew of thoughts go through your head, and like you want to try whatever you can to maximize the probability, but it does take away the, you know, the the funness of lovemaking that was present in my twenties, you know, <laughs> uh, when I was younger and spirited. That definitely, like, I feel like that, the desire to have that passion was still there. But every day it became less and less about the passion. And over time, it, you know, it just becomes frustrating.
1: For Scott, his sense of sexual identity was starting to shift. He entered the marriage feeling like the young buck, for lack of a better term, and was really confident in his abilities to start a family. And even though he knew his sperm were performing normally, he says there was still a residual feeling of doubt.
0: I definitely feel, I mean, it definitely was a fundamental shift when we started learning that like we couldn't, or it wasn't going to be as easy. And I don't think I've ever been the type that's like, my manhood is dependent on me spreading my seed and like the baby must be, uh, well, I guess the, the genetic part of it, that was always an assumption, but never necessarily a requirement. But, like, even when you're, like, a kid, you're like, one day I'm going to have two kids and live in a house. And uh, and then turns out that that's, like, really very, very few people actually have, like, that version of, of kids and, and all of the different varieties of, of issues that come up with uh, infertility or adoption or, I mean, the list goes on. It's just a, um, an infinite amount of, of possible variations of not what you perceive to be a nuclear family.
1: Scott's mental health started to take a hit. Along with Melody, he chose to start speaking to a psychologist because the pressure was coming at him from every direction. And as a man, no one had asked him how he was doing in the IVF journey because, you know, like Melody, he was grieving. So as the COVID restrictions lifted and Scott was able to see his mates again, he really started to open up.
0: There are, I would say... um the The opportunities that I got to chat with some of my closest friends, I took those opportunities, and usually it was after like a glass or two of whiskey, um, and that helped kind of loosen the tongue a bit. But um, and like that, I think is like that was my therapy in a sense. Um, like it's just me telling them how like shitty my day is, basically. So there was, so it was uh, therapeutic to to chat with them about it, but definitely um, it didn't necessarily fully heal or you know, fix the loneliness that came along with it.
1: What Scott says he really needed was someone to just
0: normalize his experience. The one thing that I wish some of the people that I had chatted with originally had told me was that, yes, I know that you're doing this and congratulations on being vocal about it, but also if things get tough, which they will, like, hit me up or, like, uh, know that you're not alone. And uh, even for... The husband in the situation, things will get weird in its own way for you, and that is very normal, and you're not alone.
1: The nice thing about Scott is that he's super okay with talking about sex. Not once does he get shy or weirded out when I ask him deeply personal questions about his sex life. The only time I feel like I've struck a nerve is when I ask him if being medically instructed to have heaps of sex was fun. Because one of the biggest misconceptions, says Scott, is this idea that men want to have sex all of the time. Like the doctors and his friends just kept saying, you know, keep having sex, just have lots and lots of sex. In this crazy gendered way, it seems like very few people considered the possibility that the stress of the whole situation was really affecting
0: Scott's libido. In my opinion, my assumptions of the way the world works is that I think men think about sex more than women. But I do think that the counter to the myth that's also true is that um, it's not just like an animalistic, primal thing for men, which I think is part of the myth of men think about sex all the time. It's like, that's all we want. Yeah, it's great. Um, But I think there still is an emotional component to it. It's more than just for the sake of sex. It's for procreation and for romance and for passion and um, as as an expression of love for your partner.
1: Even in the moments where he did feel like having sex, Scott says that the act was now so heavily laden with meaning, he was kind of nervous to make the first move.
0: I definitely know for myself over the last year now, after going through, specifically going through IVF, there have been moments where I was lying in bed awake and... I, and my wife was next to me, like, on her phone or something. Um, and, like, I wanted to instigate something. Uh, but then I wasn't sure because I didn't know how she was feeling and if, like, it would have been welcome. And uh, so then, like, you just sort of have these moments of anxiety, which is, when you when I say it out loud, it sounds dumb because, like, it's my wife. Um, and that there were even times where I was, uh, where I had, after, like, that kind of moment would pass and nothing happened. Like, I would have moments of, like, when are we going to have sex again? Like, I have no idea. It's been, like, two weeks, and uh, things are crazy, and IVF, and, like... And then you just kind of, like, give up in that moment. But that so that, in I guess, like, to bring it back to the question, in that sense, like, yeah, I was thinking about sex with my wife, but there was also, like, all this, like, weight around it and, like... Um, emotional complexity that, like, is uh, hard for anybody to cope with, I guess.
1: In the very sexily titled Journal of Endocrinological Investigation, a paper was published that gave this whole thing a scientific name, the Sex syndrome, and I'll link this in the show notes. But basically, it says that men or women find that their sex life starts to suffer during assisted reproductive technology they're reporting less orgasms or none at all, Uh, less feelings of intimacy, higher cases of erectile dysfunction, depression, anxiety, and feelings of inadequacy or guilt. Anecdotally, I remember a friend of mine who was struggling to conceive with his partner saying that he felt like he needed to go speak to a therapist because he'd started fantasising about having sex with other women. Like, not someone specific, but just anyone but his wife. He couldn't get it up with her. The pressure had become too much. And I guess these are the gnarly, sharp edges to the experience that are so often overlooked. Our birth system in the West is epically cooked for women, but men don't fare too well either. It's tough. And Scott, over there in Texas, says that his biggest takeaway has been to share, to keep your sense of humour, and just hang in there.
0: Just the one thing I want to double down on, which I mentioned before for sure, but uh, if there are men out there listening to this who are kind of struggling with the whole process and like feeling the, the burden of being the supportive partner, and if it's hard, like it's going to continue to be hard, but know that you're not alone and like uh, I, I hear you and your, you know, struggle. So um, hang in there.
1: Because the good news is this. Sex can and will bounce back. It can be colored by so many different emotions, but in time and with a bit of work, it can go back to a place of joy and fun.
0: Yes, I would say, uh, yes, (laughs) the, I, things have definitely, I don't want to say like things have improved because like that assumes that things were in a bad place, which like, obviously we're talking about things were not in a ideal place that you would imagine your newly married life to be in, um. But definitely the – I feel like we even had a conversation as soon as it was like, oh, you're – because you're not – we're not using your egg, there's less of like a time pressure to like get this done before you're 42. Not that that's the, the age they gave, but as Melody gets older, it, the viability of her own eggs becomes worse. Um, so when we decided that it wouldn't be her egg, then the t- I guess the time limit of doing an egg transfer with a donated egg – is much more forgiving. We don't have to do a transfer immediately. Like it's less, or definitely less of a perceived pressure to get this done based on her biological clock. Um, and that, that has, uh, definitely led to, uh, the reinstatement of some of that former passion in the bedroom
1: Uh uh-huh uh-huh okay tell me more
0: we were actually out of town this weekend but we were staying with friends um so uh not exactly the sexiest of of uh um you know scenarios that that we would want to uh, engage in but um but yeah i think yeah we are definitely overdue for a romantic getaway
1: can we get these to a room please I have loved today's episode. I love talking about sex. I feel like every time we share something about sex and parenthood, it becomes a little bit less spiky. That guilt that comes alongside discussions or experiences of sex, they really do take all of the fun out of it. And so I reckon we need to be a bit more forgiving to ourselves. Parents, we're not machines. We're parents and we're pretty tired. But on the flip side, in those moments where you do get the chance to explore your sexuality, go for it. The narrative of well-behaved parents is total bullshit. Yes, we are very tired, but we're also still red-blooded humans with desires and the desire to be desired. Lord knows if you have the opportunity to cash in, do it. Anyway, that's it. So thank you to my brilliant guest today, to the lovely Scotty Rowan in Texas, you absolute legend, And my new favourite girl band, Evie and Tiani, will include links to their OnlyFan pages in the show notes for today. So until next time, enjoy shagging or not shagging or whatever it is you're doing. And remember, this may be a small story of two parents, but it's one giant tale of parent kind. This has been a Super Real production. ParentKind is produced by Julian Morgans and our executive producer is Rachel Tuffery. Our sound design and original music composition is by Jimmy Saunders and our theme song is sung by Louisa Rankin. The show has been edited by Jimmy Saunders and Patrick O'Farrell and our artwork is by Ben Thompson. Thanks for listening to our show.